Hey everyone, welcome to the Cornerstone Church Podcast. Our prayer is that through this message, you will find the Father, a family, and a fulfilling future. Be sure to connect with us online at Cornerstone Church Social to keep up with all things Cornerstone. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you so much. It's a real honor and privilege to get to share with you today. And, and you have no idea how much of an honor and privilege it is to share with you today. Just for the heck of it, I turned on my microphone a little bit early and I saw that my battery was almost dead. And so I got, got fixed up. So, you know, I'm going to go. I think I have a new battery. I can probably go an hour and a half or so. So that's good. <laughs> that's great. Well, hey, I want to tell you what a thrill it is to be one of your pastors here I'm speaking for myself, for Pastor Donnie and Pastor Jacob today, telling you thank you so much for the way that you honored us during Pastor's Appreciation Month. It was um, wonderful to read the notes and to, to just receive the encouragement that you gave us. We are so grateful we don't take it lightly that we get to serve you. Um, now, in substituting for Pastor Jacob today, I, I kind of have a burden here, you know, uh, Jacob Barrick is our resident video interview expert, and in the last couple of weeks, he has lauded me, uh, tongue-in-cheek, as an athletic person playing basketball, you know. Nobody, none of you believed it. None of you believed it, but um, I feel like coming up following Jacob, I do have to have some kind of a sports illustration just to handle the job, don't you think? So what I figured I would do is get my sports illustration in right away. And, you know, we could choose from those Buckeyes. Pretty good, right? And no matter what you have to say about the Browns, last week was just pretty doggone impressive. That was really great. But I decided to go with basketball. And not even current basketball. How about that? So that's, here's my athletic stuff to tell you. Um, you know this you know that there's a debate about who is the GOAT in basketball, whether it's LeBron James or Michael Jordan. So we're just going to take a test this morning, no brawls, okay? But we need to do it with noise so that we know if you believe that Michael Jordan or, um, or LeBron is, when I mention their name, you give a holler, okay? How many believe that Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time? <laughs> She did that this first service, too. I think she's really biased. Okay. How many of you think that her hometown boy, LeBron, is? I think without her, it might have been even. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. But here's the truth. Whether you think the greatest of all time in basketball is LeBron or um, Michael Jordan, the fact is they're both incredible, right? They're really, they're really great. Now, I'm old enough that I remember something that many of you in the service today won't remember. I, I remember a 1991 commercial that came out, and it was the Be Like Mike commercial. Who else remembers that? Okay, there's a bunch of you who do. Now, it not only was a great commercial then, it still is cited in uh, commercial history and in sports history as one of the best sports commercials of all time. It's one of the top two uh, in ranking. And what it was, was Michael Jordan playing basketball with a variety of ages of players, little kids, uh, all the way up through uh, much older adults, playing basketball with them and having fun interacting with them. And it was to uh, a song in the background was Be Like Mike. And the reason that that song was written, especially for 
um, this commercial is because they tried to use the Jungle Book uh, song, um, I Want to Be Like You, and Disney wouldn't let them uh, use those rights, so they wrote a new song and made the, the uh, commercial pretty spectacular. And what it did, besides making a great commercial, is it did a lot in the minds of the public to establish Michael Jordan as a great player and a great man, one that kids would want to emulate in playing sports. Now, whether you have ever wished you were more like an athlete or not, there's one thing I feel sure about. There are people that you have seen in life, people around you, that have an intangible grasp on something or someone that changes everything about them. They don't have roller coaster up and down faith. They don't have that. They are strong, dependable, faithful. If they say it, you can take it to the bank. They're not up and down. Their perspective is different. They have really uh, great days that are just incredible with joy. But actually, even when it's not a joyful day, uh, by terms of circumstances, they're upbeat, they're happy, they're perspective. They don't concentrate on their appearance or uh, the appearance of other people or feelings. They are courageous. Their perspective is is steady regardless of the circumstances. They laugh and enjoy life. They're generous over the top. They can face adversity and they do face adversity with calmness and poise. They don't blame and call out anybody who's offended them for some little thing. They aren't even easily offended. They don't feel pressured to prove anything. They have faith. The kind of faith we all want to have. They are the goats, the greatest of all time in that category. Now, this, this day today starts a three-week series on I want that kind of faith. I want that kind of faith. The compiled books and letters that we call the Bible uh, have been compiled over years. They were compiled over years of people's journeys with God where they recorded their experiences with them. And one of the books in there is called Hebrews. Now, most scholars say that it's probably likely that the Apostle Paul wrote that book. But the reason they say probably, the thing that causes a little bit of doubt that he was the one who wrote it is because there were other uh, wise people then and his books, everything else, every other letter that he has written uh, has a salutation. He claims it is his. He says, this is from Paul. This one is no name, but it's written clearly by a very educated, um, faithful person. And so they say probably most likely Paul Don't tell anybody this, okay? Don't ever tell anybody this. If you're online, don't you tell anybody this either, okay? I think it might have been Phoebe. I think it might have been written by a woman because Phoebe... Phoebe was a deacon in the church. She was very trusted by Paul. She was very well educated. And uh, she wouldn't have written her name because being from a woman would have made it carry less weight, not in uh, Christian terms, but in the terms of the culture. So it doesn't matter, though, really who wrote it. It is very clear it's a person of unshakable faith. And in the book of Hebrews, faith is defined for us and outlined for us. And chapter 11 itself is generally called uh, the Bible Hall of Fame of Faith. So... All the people that you'll read in uh, chapter 11 are distinguished by their great faith in God and by the fact that their faith was not like this, but it was steady. It was the kind of faith that we want to have. So I'm going to read for you Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. It'll be on the screen, and it's from the New Living Translation, and you can follow along if you would like. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. 
Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command and that we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable sacrifice to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man and God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by his example of faith. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. He just disappeared because God took him. Wouldn't that be a great way to go? That'd be pretty awesome. I I like that. For before he was taken up, he was known as a person who pleased God. And it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Would you pray with me just a minute, please? Lord Jesus, as we come to you this morning, we know that there's a lot of us who have come to this day with with burdens and heavy things on our hearts that uh, keep us distracted. But in these next moments, you want to assure us that you are caring for the things that we care about and we can afford right now to focus on on things that are important to our life with you. And I pray that you would help us to do that as we move forward towards the kind of faith we need for our lives. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, if we were going to have a discussion of what the characteristics are of a person whose faith we want to have, one of the very first things we would say is that faith has to be consistent when no one is looking. It's the same when you see them as when you don't. One of the best compliments I believe that I can ever give about a person that I know really well is to be able to see, let me just tell you the truth, he's exactly the way you think he is when you see him in person as when he's not. That's a great compliment because that's the way that we're supposed to live. It's the thing that changes our life. The premier characteristic of the people that have the kind of faith that we all want to have is that, listen, this is really important, they would rather be good and do good than look good or feel good. Did you catch that? There's a real big difference. They would rather be good and do good than look good or feel good. Now, the truth is, We know that we all live in a look good and feel good world, right? That's exactly where we are. And if we were totally honest, that's the optimum value for most people. I just want to look good. I want people to think everybody's up and to the right for me. And I want to feel good. That's just what we want. If you don't believe it, just check out the the Instagrams or Facebook posts of most people. If you know them fairly well, You may be seeing, and it's most likely that you are, you're seeing a very different, really upbeat, really, ooh, I'm so cool picture of these people online, and that's not actually reality when you know their home life and you know how things are there. It's just the way that we live. We we do just like um, our moms used to do with Christmas letters, you know, those old-fashioned things, how mom would find two or three incredible things that happened during the year and, and she would blow them up to be even bigger than that and you would send it out and everybody who read that letter would think you were the wealthiest, healthiest, and happiest family that ever lived, right? It just didn't happen to be true. What we tend to do is find our highlight moments, dress them up, and then put them out there on reels so that we show a life that is not actually authentic and it barely resembles who we are. 
we concentrate on looking good and feeling good in the moment. When we do that, we don't have the when nobody's looking faith. We just don't have it. If we are honest and discerning about ourselves, we would probably have to own that by far the majority of the major mess-ups in our life, the periods of great despair and depression, the crises that we've had all through our lives, most of those originate with a heavy emphasis on our desire to feel good and be good and do good, not do good, to feel good and look good, rather than to be good and do good. Our lives are ruled by our feelings, our emotions, our desires, and who is watching us. But the people that we admire most, the heroes that we admire the most, are the ones who recognize that God is always watching. There's never a moment when no one is watching, and they make the integrity choice no matter who else sees. This is what that phrase that we hear all the time, living my best life, really means. I mean, you can see all kinds of pictures on TV and on Instagram and different places, and it'll be followed with the caption, living my best life. And it could be anything from being on a beach to drinking a glass of wine to playing with a dog to anything. Really, is that what it takes for best life? Really? What do we actually mean by living our best life? Well, that phrase really, back in the days when it originated in the early 2000s, was about living your best life means that you're actually living out your values. And the people who have the when no one's watching faith, faith, that's what they're doing. They're living out their values. Now, except for Jesus, no one in the recorded Bible history uh, displays this more definitely than Joseph. Perhaps you know his life story from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Maybe you know it from Disney movies. Um, Maybe you know it from storybooks. Or how about this? Maybe you even know it from the Bible. How about that? That'd be great if you know it it from there. I want to give you a quick review from the book of Genesis. That's the first book in the Bible where his story is told, although he's mentioned in many other books. But I want to give you a quick review of his life to bring us up to where we are today. Okay, he was born the 11th of 12 sons to Jacob and Rachel. 11th of 12 sons. Wow. Rachel was not the mother of all of them. But Genesis 37, 3 says, Joseph was his father's favorite because he was the son of his old age, born to his favorite wife. Now that verse alone carries two big warnings. Don't ever have a favorite child and really don't ever have a favorite wife, okay? It just leads you into trouble. But when, when uh, Joseph was six, his family moved uh, to Canaan, and his father, as we just read, really loved him. He really loved him, and he spoiled him. And throughout the course of his young life, he gave him many presents and did many things that set him above the other children. But when he was a teenager, he did the equivalent of this. If you're a dad and you have several children and you have one that you just love more than anybody else who's your favorite child and you give that child a brand new car, a sports car, anything that he wants, brand new, it's just beautiful and you pay all the insurance on it and the rest of your kids get used cars, they buy for themselves and they pay their own insurance, how well are those kids going to like each other? Not well, right? It's not going to be just dad they're mad at. It's going to be the the one with the sports car. 
the one that they see and it rubs it in all the time. That's what Jacob did to Joseph and his family. Now, in that day, he couldn't get a car. They didn't have any sports camels or anything like that either. So he couldn't do that. But what he did do was something that established prominence and a sense of royalty in that day. He gave him a special coat. It took a lot to manufacture anything that had a lot of color in it, ornate uh, trimming and all of that. And he did that for Joseph. He did that for Joseph. He made this coat, the kind of coat that only a prince would wear. And he gave it to his favorite son. His brothers hated it. They absolutely hated it. It raised their bitterness every time they saw it. Now, Jacob made another error as father as well. He used his young son to check up on and tattle on his brothers. He would send them out. They were shepherds and he would send uh, Jacob out to the fields far away where they were to take supplies, but also to check on them. Now, because um, they never told the brothers when Joseph would be coming, he would be there and they wouldn't know he was there. And they were certainly not the kind of guys that, that lived the same when no one is watching as, as when someone was watching. So he caught them on all kinds of behavior. And the Bible tells us he took back bad reports to his dad. They figured he was a snitch, a tattletale, a brown noser, all of that, all of that. That's how they felt about him. Now, Joseph was not innocent in all of this because he made a a not very smart mistake. Are you familiar with Jesus saying, don't give your pearls to pigs? You've heard that saying? Okay, Jesus was not in any way saying that pigs are bad. He's saying you never see a pig wearing pearls because pigs don't know what to do with pearls. They don't appreciate them, right? They're going to get a muddy, broken, all that kind of stuff. And so what Jesus was saying is there are people that don't understand how to handle your precious stuff. They don't know what to do with your secrets. So don't tell your secrets. Don't tell your intimate thoughts to someone who doesn't know how to handle them. Don't do that. Only share the intimate things of yourself with people who know how to handle them. He didn't know that. And so he, he expected that most people would think about the, him the way his father did. And so he had an, an intimate relationship with God and he knew that God was going to use him in great ways in his life. And he had dreams. God would give him dreams and speak to him in dreams that showed how God was going to use him. Joseph gave his pearls to pigs. He told his brothers about these things and they were not all excited that they were going to be brothers to the guy that God was going to use. It made them very angry and bitter and they hated him more and more. At 17, Joseph's dad sent him to take supplies and check on his brothers who were at this time in a place called Shechem. They were uh, pretty far from home, taking care of these large flocks. And so he was to go there and take supplies and bring back a report. And he was a dutiful son. He went there, went on this long trip, did what his dad told him to do. And he got to the place and there were no shepherds. There were no, no brothers there. Good time to turn around and go home, right? That's not what he did because he was a dutiful son. He found a man and he asked the man, were, were there shepherds out here at some time? Do you know what would have happened to them? And the guy said, yes. He said, they ran out of grazing land and they have gone to Dothan. Okay, Dothan uh, is a ways away. It was more of the trip. I mean, can't you imagine if you were Joseph that you might have thought, are you serious? I got to go further for these brothers? Really? But this is what dad said to do. The brothers needed the supplies. And so he went anyways. He went ahead. He chose to be right, not to just look right and feel good. It would have felt good 
to turn around and go back home. I mean, who's going to know? The brothers would never know that he had been there. He can go back home and say, hey, they weren't there, Dad. That would be truth. But he didn't do that. He was dutiful. He was faithful. He wanted to be right, not just look right or feel right. So he kept traveling. It's a long, flat terrain where he was going, and his brothers saw him coming at a distance when he was approaching where they were. When they saw him, they couldn't stand it. They knew he was coming to give a report again, and so they hated him. They hated him so badly that as he was approaching, they cooked up a plan to kill him. They were going to kill their brother, and this is what they decided to do. They decided to throw him into a big empty cistern that was there, like a big uh, dry well, to throw him into there, and they would let him starve to death and thirst to death in there. That's how he would die. And they would take his coat and tear it up into pieces and dip it. They'd kill an animal and dip it in the animal's blood, and then they would take bloody pieces of the uh, coat back home to their dad and say, we are so sorry. You must have sent Joseph to help us. And this is what we found. He's been killed by an animal. Wow. Are you catching a theme here? Yeah. These guys wanted to feel good and look good. They didn't want to be good and do good. They wanted to get their own desires and run by their emotions. And so when Joseph arrived, they did just that. They stripped him of his coat. They threw him in the cistern, and then the Bible tells us this is incredible. And then they sat down and ate the meal that Joseph brought them. That's hard-hearted, right? It's really hard-hearted. So after they're sitting there eating, they see a caravan coming by where they're sitting in the distance. And Judah, a brother who didn't really want to kill his younger brother, he didn't want him around, but he didn't want to kill him, he said, you know what, I have an idea. We don't really want to kill him, do we? I mean, after all, he's our flesh and blood. Let's just sell him as a slave. Much better idea, right? So um, he said, these guys coming, let's sell them to him. And that's what everybody agreed to do. And so they pulled him out of the well. They sold him to Ishmaelite uh, traders who were coming through. Um, They sold him to go into Egypt and they sold him for 20 shekels of silver, which in our money today would be about uh, $275 or $23 a piece. And that's appreciated from that day. So, wow. Can you imagine how Joseph must have felt after being for hours in that dark cistern coming up into sunlight and looking around and seeing the hatred on his brother's faces, not hearing a kind word from them, being sold to traders who, as he's jerked up out of the well, he's either naked or nearly naked, and these uh, slave traders are looking at him, appraising how much money they can get for him when they get to Egypt. Can you imagine how it felt to be cared for so little And to recognize, to realize that you'll never hear your mother's voice again. You'll never be loved and seen by your father again. Well, that's where we pick up the story today. That's the prelude. And here's where we are today. This is Genesis chapter 39. When Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord was with Joseph. Remember that phrase. The Lord was with Joseph. So he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egypt master. Potiphar noticed this 
and realized that the Lord was with Joseph. Hey, on your hard days, on your good days, is anybody looking at you and noticing even a person without faith? Potiphar had none, but he recognized, hmm, this guy's got a different kind of faith. The Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. Get a load of that. This is a pagan guy. But because Joseph was with him, God was blessing him, even though this man had no faith of his own. Don't kid yourself. You are forever impacted, and you are forever impacting everyone that you gather around you by your faith or your lack of it, by the quality of faith that you have. And parents, don't be discouraged. If your kids are not following Jesus yet, don't worry too much about them. Just pray for them. Your, Your deal is to live the no one, when no one is looking faith, your job is to be good and do good in God's sight all the time. And when that happens, God will bless your kids for your sake and you will find them come to know Jesus. That's just how it works out. All his household affairs ran smoothly and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing my kind of guy, except what kind of food to eat. That's pretty wild to have that life. Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. Now think about it. The one who is closest to the one who is in complete authority over you tells you to do something here, but you know it's wrong, and you know she has the power for no one to find out. Wow. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? I'll get arrested and I'll be thrown in jail or I'll get killed or everybody's going to know. That's not what he said. He said, how could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. That's a characteristic of people who have the kind of faith that's enviable because they know that's where the answer lies. They want to do good and be good in the sight of God, not just look good. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her and he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. She came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. Wow. Now think about this. Joseph, scholars tell us, and the the biblical storyline lets us know that Joseph was probably still just about 18, certainly no more than 20, when this happened. Wow. Think about it. Man, many of the, the older, more mature men that you and I know would have a really hard time not excusing doing this, let alone Joseph, only 17 or 18. Who will ever know? And then you think about Joseph. 
He's been sold away from his family. They're not going to know. He doesn't have any loving touches on him in any way, shape, or form. He probably could use some comfort. Be easy to excuse it. No one's going to find out. But he didn't. As we read, Joseph knew that God was always with him. He never leaves us. He always sees us. He always knows where we are and how we're doing. Now, that's a great thing. If you trust God and you choose to be good, to be right, not just feel good and look good. A powerful choice like that is so obedient. So don't you agree with me? With all that great obedience, wasn't God pretty much obligated to take care of this trouble for Joseph? Don't you think? Hmm. Well, let's see. The next scripture tells us, Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. Now, extra biblical speculation, people from extra biblical historians say that she was a young and very neglected trophy wife. She was forced to marry Potiphar, a much older man, for her father's financial benefit. And uh, Potiphar would choose to believe her uh, regardless of the evidence to the contrary because he needed to believe that, of course, everybody would want what he had. The reason we know that he probably was aware that Joseph was not guilty of this is the fact that he didn't kill him. He was the captain of the king's bodyguards. That was in his authority. He was an executioner. He could do that, Um, but he chose not to do that. He chose to let him live. He took Joseph and threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held, probably a dungeon under the house that Potiphar lived in as captain of the king's bodyguards, but it was not pleasant there. Psalms, later on in in the Bible, in the book of Psalms, it tells us that Joseph was abused and had his feet in fetters for much of the time that he was in that prison. And so, then it tells us he was put in the prison and there he remained. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison. How long was the Lord with Joseph in the prison? Brace yourself. Somewhere between 11 and 13 years. He was in that prison until he was 30 years old. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. What happened next? Make sure you come back next Sunday. (laughs) Seriously. Seriously, we'll tell you what happened next Sunday. You don't want to miss it. Today, we're going to finish up by thinking about what we can know so far about having that kind of faith, the when no one is looking kind of faith. Think about it for a moment with me here. If you had been raised unwisely to be a rival to your siblings, caused them to hate you so much that they wanted you to be dead, if you had been sold into slavery by them, if you were believed to be dead by your beloved parents and you knew you would never see them again, if you worked so conscientiously for your slave owner that he trusted you with everything and then his wife viciously lied about you when you resisted temptation and were actually loyal to him and you were thrown into prison by the one you thought appreciated you and then you were in prison unjustly for a decade. That's pretty rough, right? Okay, and so then, what if on top of that, 
The constant refrain that you heard was, and God was with him. I would think most of us would feel like that can't possibly be true. I mean, I've read this story many times, and I've thought, God, I think I would have said to you, God, could you back off just a little bit? If this is what you being with me is like, I can take some space, right? (laughs) Isn't that kind of how we would feel? And I know that's how you would feel too, unless you have that kind of faith that he had. Because here's the truth. In our for real lives, most of us, when, you know, we are following Jesus and we say that we're, you know, God's child, we do that. If we lose our job, if someone doesn't like us, if we feel betrayed, if we have varying degrees of pain and hardship in our life, or even if someone succeeds more than us and we know they don't deserve it as much as we do, what do we feel like? we almost automatically assume that God isn't paying attention to us. We assume that he's not hearing our prayers or he's not being fair. Whatever, you name it, we begin to feel like somehow God has dropped the ball on us. And then you think about that thing when it says he found favor with the the prison warden, as if that's supposed to be encouraging. Hey, if you're being obedient to God, why in the heck do you even know a prison warden? You know, why do you need favor with him. But Joseph, a faithful person in all situations, up days and down days, the person besides Jesus in the Bible that I most want to emulate with my life, he never went there. He never went there. He believed from way, way back that God was with him. He didn't doubt. He did not accuse God. He didn't let his circumstances And the way that other people had behaved determined what he did. He never yielded to the the temptation to decide his obedience and purity, the level of it, and the integrity of his words and actions to depend on who he knew was watching. Ever. He never did. He never let what he did depend on who would find out. How did he do that? How did he not yield to the temptation to just look good and feel good? He had plenty of opportunities. How can I have a faith like that? Well, the same way that he did, and most of the people that you admire, that you really admire, particularly if you admire them for their faith, the same way that they did. Now, as we close out this message, I'm going to give you a few things that I hope you'll take to heart And you'll do on a regular basis because, honest to goodness, they will change your level of faith. They will change your willingness to do good and be good in God's sight, regardless of anything else. And that will change your life for the better, forever. So if you take notes on anything, take notes on these. There's a few statements here I hope you'll take with you in your heart and you will say them from your heart every single day. First of all, Jesus told us a whole new vision of God. The world in no religion had ever and still hasn't except the Jewish faith has never thought of God as father. But he told us every time we pray, address God as our father. And so I want to encourage you every morning, every morning, and then many times throughout the day, Anytime you're feeling blessed, frustrated, any moment you have a moment, address him as father and decree this, father, 
My priority is to be good and do good in your sight. I don't want to just look good and feel good. You know, after last night's sermon, someone gave me a quote that I thought was so good. It was this. Do what makes you feel good about yourself when you're alone, not just feel good. You know what? Almost everybody here, that would, change, that would have changed your life if you had done that at one point or another. You have to look at yourself in the mirror every day, and God knows too. So you can't do it. You can't make your choice of your life on feeling good and looking good. So tell, tell your father every morning, Father, this day, my priority is to do good and be good in your sight today. I don't want to run by my emotions. And then secondly, you say, I believe, I decide to believe, regardless of the evidence, I decide to believe that you are with me. I decide to believe that God is with me. And that's a decision, friends. It's a decision for everybody. It's not a feeling. If you wait until you feel like God is with you, you'll be waiting your whole life. You have to decide it. And then your emotions catch up with your decisions. Decide to believe. And so you tell God, Father, I believe that you are with me. I believe you're with me every second of the day. You're with me all the time. I believe that you see and know everything. And you know God does, whether you believe it or not. He does. And that's only scary. It's only scary if you don't have this next statement in place. The next one is this. God, I believe that you are not only with me all the time. I believe that you are for me. You're on my side. I believe that you are for me. You say, I have a hard time believing that. I have a hard time believing that God is for me. Are you freaking kidding me, as they say? God allowed his one and only son, and Jesus did it willingly, came to this earth, found out what it was like to be us, and then he gave his, his life, died on the cross, separated from his father, for you and I. Now, if someone who you've never met, you don't even know their name, died for you, how much more evidence would you have to have to believe they cared about you? No more. No more. We don't, we don't need to doubt that. You don't need to doubt that because God is for us and he has proven it in every single way. You don't have to feel like it. Again, if you wait till you feel like you're worthy of God's attention and that he is for you. You'll never get there on your feelings. You know, you have found the same as I have many times when I get change. I'll get this raggedy old dollar bill and you can tell it's been all crunched up and, you know, it's limp. It almost feels like cloth now and it's torn and it may have graffiti on it everywhere. You know what? I never get worried about it. I'm never afraid to take it to the store. I know I can push that raggedy old thing in front of them and they're going to honor it for the full weight of the dollar. They're not going to discount it and say, you only get 50 cents for that one. That one's pretty rough or maybe only 10 cents. No, they don't do that. It's a dollar every single time. And you know why? Because it says all over it, backed by the United States Treasury. It doesn't matter how raggedy you look, how raggedy you feel, how unworthy you feel. You are backed by the king of the universe. He has put his mark on you. He is for you. You can afford to live your life with confidence. He is for you. He is with you. He is for you. 
He has backed your life by the death and resurrection and the forgiveness of his son. You have to believe it and act on it, regardless of appearances. Hey, do you know this song? I'm pretty old. I know this song. It's one of the um, 100 most favorite hymns in history. If you know it, sing it with me, okay? And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Do you know why that song is so favorite? Because it speaks of an intimacy that everybody craves. Everybody wants to be close like that to someone who really cares about them. And that's God. That is God for you. And in order to have that, you have to make this next choice. The Psalm 16, 8 choice. David originally said it, and then it was re-quoted in the New Testament, and it became a mantra of these people who were facing all kinds of hardships and seeing all kinds of miracles. They had what could have had been a roller coaster faith. They could have been shaken all over over the place because of all the things that were happening in their lives. But they weren't. Why? Because of this right here. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Joseph could have said that. In other words, he did say that. He lived that. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. And despite all the really awesome things that happened to these people and the hard things that happened, they were even, they were good. And the Bible tells us, the history tells us, even secular history tells us, they turned the world upside down with, the, with their when nobody's watching faith. But most of us don't have that. We have this kind of faith. You know what this is? This is a toddler leash. You put this on the grown-up's wrist, and you put this on the little kid's wrist, and you can get them really long. If I had attempted to put one of these on any of my three, it would have had to have been much longer, okay? (laughs) But what this is intended to do is to give the toddler a sense of independence while really you're in charge. And you're letting them go pretty far, but you're going to jerk them back if they start to step in a hole or if they get too close to a doggy that looks mean or something like that. You're going to jerk them back. And you know how it is. You know how it is. If you've never used one of these, you know how it would be. When you jerk your little two-year-old back, your two-year-old turns around and looks at you with such love and adoration and says... Thank you, mommy, for taking care of me like that, right? No. To quote the kids again, they're freaking mad. They're really mad. They don't want to have it. Now, I'm not familiar with this, but I'm real familiar with this. You know this? I love this. Barkley, on the other hand, does not. He loves it for a while. He loves it when I stretch this out as far as I can and I don't have the, the lock on it and he can go way, way out in front of me. And he has the same feeling. 
He feels so totally independent. And he can run over here where he can get leeches on him and all kinds of stuff. He can go over that if I let him go too far. He can get in water. He can see a big dog coming down the, the pathway, and he thinks he's just as tough and rough as that dog is, and he could get himself into a really big fight and get hurt and all of that kind of stuff. But he doesn't really care because he feels really independent. He looks good, and he feels good. The only thing he wants me there for is to prevent tragedy. That's all. He wants to do his own thing. He wants me to prevent tragedy. And when I see tragedy coming, I've learned to do much better than this. I keep a tighter leash on him. But when I see tragedy coming, and it's coming like maybe in the form of that big dog, I will snap this, and you know what happens? It halts him right where he is. He gets the protection from... um, being hurt, he gets a protection from tragedy that I'm trying to give him. But is he thrilled about it? No, he's just like that toddler. In doggy language, he's really mad because he likes to feel independent. He doesn't see me as a need for anything except just protecting him. I'm taking him for a walk because I love him, because I like to spend time with him. But he just wants protection and independence. You know, we are like that. Unless we deliberately decide differently, we want to live our best life. We want to have that independent life where we do whatever much we doggone want to. We just stay leashed enough to God that if we get close enough to tragedy, he jerks us back. And when he jerks us back, You know how we all are. We turn to him and we say, well, thank you, Father. It was so wonderful for you to prevent me from taking that job, to prevent me from marrying that woman. It was just wonderful of you to do that. Is that what we do? No, we're mad. We're mad and we feel betrayed by God. We feel like that he's let us down because we want as much independence as possible. So what we do is we check in on Sunday We do whatever we want to and just count on him to jerk us back. We're just calling out to God, just stop me. If you don't want me to do this, just stop me. But up until then, I'll do my thing. Let me tell you what, Jesus loves you. Your father loves you and respects you far too much for that. He's not going to do that for your life. He wants you to walk with him and talk with him. And know from experience that you are his. The other way is a mediocre faith that may get you to heaven, but it's going to be pretty hellish around here. You're not going to live in the way that you want to live. You need to remember that every step you take is a step in a direction. And if you want a step in a direction of the incredible, when nobody's looking kind of faith, You have to decide, you have to decide that you will be good and do good, not just look good and feel good. You have to decide that God is your father and he is with you always by your choice. You have to decide to believe that God is for you and you need to make the Psalm 16, 8 choice that you will walk in step with God. You'll have him at your right hand all the time. 
Anyone can have a faith that looks good on Sundays. Hands stretched high during worship, dropping something in the offering plate, giving the pastor an amen every now and then. But how about a faith that still looks good on Tuesday? How about a faith that keeps you steady when you feel like a ragged $1 bill? How about the faith? How about the faith that keeps you on top of circumstances, not under them? How about a faith that is even enough that on a good day, you can praise the Lord, and on a hard day, you can serve the Lord and bless him? How about the faith that will do the God thing when nobody's looking and when everybody's looking? Sticking as close to him is the only way you can have that kind of faith. It's, a miracle. it's not a miracle or something that's only for a few. It's available to everyone. It's the way God wants everyone to live. Everybody is backed by God the Father that chooses to put their faith in him and walk with him. It is found by all those who decide to follow Jesus all the time. No turning back. The life of real joy and adventure. I'm going to ask the ministry partners who are going to serve communion to us this morning and the worship team to come forward. And here's what I want to tell you about the communion that we're receiving this morning. It's always this way, but I want to really drive it home for you today, okay? Communion is about celebration and about commitment. It's about celebrating who we are in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and what he's made available to us. And that's, that's how Jesus established it. And we want you to celebrate who you are and what he's done for you and that you are backed by the God of the universe, that he is for you. But it's also for commitment. It's a time to look at our relationship with Jesus and the choices that we're making and how we can follow him more closely. And so I want to tell you, you do not have to be a member of Cornerstone Church or even a member of any church to receive communion here. But here's what does need to happen. Not that I'm going to know. I'm not watching. But God's going to know. Is this a commitment from you to walk closely with him? Is this a commitment from you to not just look good and feel good, but to be good and to do good? to be what is right in his eyes. I'm going to invite you to stand with me now. And as the worship team sings this wonderful song, you are invited to come forward for a commitment, and I want to invite you. you. You don't have to go at any certain time, although, you know, we typically go in, in order of rows. But don't just make it a casual thing that you do by routine. Come when you know that you're coming with a commitment to follow Jesus all of your life. I choose to 
I don't know if I can handle that song one more time this weekend. I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack. Yeah, that's so, so great, and it is a cry of my heart. I will tell you, um, Joseph beat me by a little bit on an adult commitment to Jesus Christ, but I want to tell you this, and when I say adult commitment, I mean it wasn't just loving Jesus. It was choosing Jesus and knowing that it meant no turning back, that I was going to be with him whether he did things the way I liked him or the way I didn't like him. I made that choice when I was 16, and I haven't been perfect, but I've never turned back. The Lord is at my right hand, and I am never shaken. I am never shaken. My life has had a lot of highs in it. I am so grateful. It's also had significant lows in it. But you know what? Jesus is there all the time, and he is always for me. It's the most amazing thing. It's a wonderful thing. My faith never lets me down because God never lets me down. He is for me. And let me just tell you this. If you're feeling like a raggedy $1 bill this morning, I just want to tell you this. The name of your maker is all over you. And your worth has not diminished because of anything you've done ever. Jesus Christ has stamped his value on you. And if you will walk with him and follow him with your life, oh my goodness, what great days are ahead of you. Great days are ahead of you. And I'm so excited for you. I hope that will happen. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to contact us or find out more about our ministry, head over to our website at cornerstonechurch.info. Have a great week.